0: My family connections are Bidra, our and our and in what is now known as Central Queensland. Uh, and I'm a an uninvited guest. I currently live on tourable country on Brisbane's North, and uh, it's a wonderful privilege to join in the, the the dialogue that happens in and around the IMA. I'd like to extend my acknowledgements to Aileen and Yohan, the directors, and Madeline. Where have Madeline ended up down the back. Good, can't see and the whole crew from the IMA, and extend my gratitude for your ongoing support of these kinds of conversations and for for continuing to hold the space open so that this can continue. And I'd like to acknowledge all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander family and countrymen who are here in the the audience. Uh, Aunty Maruchi Baramba and her Tourable community have been very generous to myself around the exhibition. And I'd like to acknowledge the Tourable people as well as the Yagara and Jagrapul peoples of, of this region as well so sitting to my right is a gentleman who <laughs> i've known my whole life and uncle steve would you please tell us who you are and where you've come from to be here tonight
1: yeah no, look at works too um, i'm from a place you might see my here and it says Wurra binda Wurra mean kangaroo and binda means sit down so we come from a place where the kangaroo sat down Binda is basically like Sherberg, if you know where Sherberg is, it was a mission, or they used to call them missions, communities, whatever. But they were basically formed when we were, when when genocide was happening. So before, prior to the missions happening, people were getting shot out left, right, and said a man, woman, baby, child, because of they wanted the productive land and all this sort of stuff. But there was good, good people around that said, Oh, we can't be doing this. So that's when they rounded up all the people. So if you look at my shirt again, it has 52 tribes, so it says 52 nations. So that's just Warabinda. Sherberg would probably have 52 nations that went there as well. I just need to tell you this in case you don't know, but so say our families, and it happened to my family, where the brothers and sisters couldn't see each other because they were in dormitories. Uh, some of the families were split up, so between Warabinda, Palm Island, Cherberg and even Yarraba. So he, he could be my brother, but he was sent to Yaraba so I couldn't talk to him, I couldn't talk lingo, you know, we couldn't do the cultural practices. But I was very fortunate to have a father that had, had a fantastic, fantastic knowledge. Mm. And he, yeah, he just passed away a couple of years ago, but anyway. Uh, so I was able to get a job at the school. I had a couple of series of heart attacks from my own fault. And so I worked down the Woodbinder State. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I'm a diesel fitter by trade. And they said, oh, you want a job at the Warbinder State School? I said, yeah. Oh, well, I said, I don't know, but I'll give it a go. Anyway, uh, the language program is going so excellent. If you just want to have a look, look at Warbinder State School on the website and you see our little kids and they're so fantastic, you know, three years, four years later. So that's one part, that's the biggest part of me. And uh, the other part of me is these wooden objects that we've got sitting in front of us. And when I seen a TV program which was 60 Minutes and it showed Aboriginal art in, in Bali or wherever the hell it was and all the people that think things are real and they're not, you know? Like, this stuff is fair dinkum real stuff and we could talk about some of the stuff. There's uh, things called Rosewood, Lancewood, Sandalwood, well, Pulse Sandalwood and Poplar Box samples here. But I could talk forever and ever and that's what this fellow's here to shut me up, <laughs> but we could start with the poplar box, I guess
0: yeah, could I yeah before we go there on huh? could you how we related? could can you oh. please frame that for how how you and I seem to be here uh, Okay, uh... we're
1: related through his grandmother in our way, his grandmother was my sister, so my father had 64 nep- nephews and nieces, and I'm one of those 64 cousins, I guess, if you want to call it. And so I'm the second youngest of those cousins. So a lot of our, out of that 64, probably be flat at being 10 left, I guess. There's not many left out of them older people. So I've got a cousin out at Warabinder and he's 80 years of age, and he's still knowledgeable. You know, So I've got all the knowledge from all the old people over the conversations. But when I was young, I didn't think I'd listen. And I didn't think I had that memory retention because I drank copious amounts of alcohol and all the rest of it. But now that I've gone back out to country 28 years ago and things started to come back, all the memories, and then I and Dad kept on coming out you know, every couple of months. And, and he'd say, this bush, that tree, and this one there. I was, yeah, stop, stop. Just tell me three things every time you come out. So in the 28 years, I was able to grasp the whole knowledge yeah, that's how we're related to the, the, the uh, to Dale and quite a few other cousins.
0: Yeah, and there's also Uncle John. Yeah, Uncle John's back walking around here well, somewhere.
1: His, his grandfather was also my dad's brother, but his, his grandmother was my dad's niece. Yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, for those who have seen the exhibition and might be familiar, in Gallery 2 is a work that shows the oral history of Mr Tim Kemp and that's Uncle Steve's father. Oh, mm. well,
1: he's got many stories. That's one, one story. And then after he passed, I found a few more stories that are absolutely fantastic. And so, what we want to do, it seems that we've got the language program in our school, and we've made templates and we've got it into the curriculum and everything, how to assess it and what they're going to learn every term. Now we've got to make the resources. So, because we were observation people, you know, we could see everything. So, people might look at a kangaroo and then they go and shoot that kangaroo, but they might have shot the wrong kangaroo. You know, no one takes time to look at the creatures anymore. So even a porcupine or an echidna, even the people that were living at Wurubinda didn't realise how to tell a male from a female, didn't know that they really laid an egg and where did the baby suck milk. So porcupine got no lips, so how's he going to suck milk? And the other thing is they take mirrors and torches and look up logs to find them. my dad and um, his brother-in-law used to go up bush and they'd put a tarp down, play cards. Ooh, listen one over there. That's oh, this one over there, Timmy. My dad's name was Timmy. He'd get up, walk over that way, pick up a porcupine, put him back in the sack. Because when they're mating in wintertime, <whistles> they whistle out. And I think it's something like, you know, yeah. like you think it's a human. Like dude. a little trill, hey? <laughs> like a little trill. Yeah. So, all the secrets of the creatures we're going to put into a books, into the resources for kids to learn. So, this term we might learn about the porcupine, next term we might learn about uh, emu. I don't know whether you've ever seen a video on YouTube, but Dad was telling me how you attract emu. You lie on your back in the long grass and wriggle your legs around. And the emu, being an inquisitive creature, comes and he looks over, he looks over the grass, and Dad's lying on the back with the with the and like this, he's lying on his back like that, but when the, when the emu look over, he bang, smack him in the head, you know. But anyway, I was telling the kids about this and they actually found the video clip on the YouTube.
0: Well, mm. Unc there, speaking of paying attention to animals and the ecosystem, mm-hmm. plants. Mm-hmm. So there's been one particular tree that you and I have been talking about oh. for about a year and you've been telling this whole story, which is very complex. I think
1: basically, yeah, I'll keep raving on about everything else. And we've only got a little bit of time, haven't we? Mm, a couple of hours. But oh, OK, well, I can talk for two hours now. Nah. <laughs> but anyway, um, what we've got here is a, what they call a kulaman. You, yes. you should put them over there. This is the most important tree to my tribe and probably to every other tribe. But just, just hold that up. You've seen this, eh? So basically, the kids said, what's a kulaman?" I said, well, before Mitre 10 or IBA or whatever, you know? That was our dinner plate. So the woman would go out in the bush and put all the berries in. That one would be our berries and gather the fruit and whatever, oh, whatever, and put our meat in there, whatever. But, but that one there is actually for baby. So one time I seen a woman walking around with their baby strapped to their back with one of those machines back in the 80s or whatever it was. Well, this is the first original baby carrier. <laughs> so they'd tie the baby in that, tie it on the back, and off they go and walk about. So that, that was uh, one purpose, but it's out of a tree called poplar box. The poplar box is actually a gum tree, and it's called P-O-P-L-A-R. So when my dad told me a story about wood, I, I looked up the scientific name and the Latin name and all the rest. But anyway, this tree is so important. So first of all, gathering food. Baby. Now, let's visualise the poplar box. And when they get to about... Oh, yeah. And a normal gum tree, you know what a gum tree leaf looks like? This one's round. The poplar box and the poplar gum that's on the coast are round leaf. Gum trees, there might be more, but they're the two that I know. So the, pop, the one on the coast looks like a ghost gum. Some people mistake it for a ghost gum. But that one, that one there, the round leaf, um, when the tree is standing up, nine times out of ten, it's hollow. And especially when they've got these lumps on it. See them lumps there? That's the sap pushing out and saying it's, ho- it's hollow, because, I don't know, for some unknown reason they grow hollow. So if we could imagine, just have a thinking, we'll go around the audience probably, yeah? yeah. Say Say gum trees, so, say there's this tra- standing up and it's got branches that are broken up, it's got holes in the side and all this type of stuff. What creatures actually live in it? Has anyone got any ideas? Yeah, just shout it out. Cockatoo. Gliders, sugar gliders. This bulk, if you have Have a think. Possums. I heard goanna here. Goanna. Bats. Yes. Snake. Yeah, some snakes there. Not so much when it's standing up, but uh, bees, you know. As soon as I got down, I started making out the list and, I was saying, oh my God, okay. And then later on, the tree falls over. Okay, what creatures live in the tree now? It's lying on the ground. So, a few more. Echidnas, Echidnas yep. Uh, this other little marsupials, like kangaroo rat. They love them logs. So, so when the logs are lying on the ground, there might be another one over here. And the kangaroo rat, if you observe him, he don't just hop through the scrub like that, you know. He look, look at. Them. and he run to the next one. So that's why it's important to leave some of them logs on the ground too for them type of creatures. So he's one. Your porcupine, snakes, now rabbits go up it too, but they're not natural. Um, and the termites get into them, and so that's why the Echidnas can roll them logs. You want, you want to see the size of the logs that those echidnas can roll. How do they do that? With, with their powerful muscles. They're so powerful. If you try to put them in an esky and you don't put a concrete block on top, they're gone. They can escape into the day. But they're as strong as. But yeah, so lying on the ground, standing up, they've got these type of creatures. Lying on the ground, they've got those type of creatures. So I, I laughed to myself one time, I said, "Oh, that's our IGA, <laughs> you know? That's our market, that's our supermarket, where these trees are, all these creatures are here, honey and all the rest of it. And, and the, of course, down the base of it, um, most of the graziers leave them trees. They won't bulldoze them. So you see a whole heap of trees bulldoze, but the plantation of box, they will leave it. Because the, according to the scientists, the box put phosphate back in the soil And it's really, really good grazing country. But if they knock it over, if they knock them trees over, it'd be erosion, erosion and drought. So, some clever grazers out there must have learned of my ancestors. So, there's one particular family out there, which is the Dunn family. And the doctor is Dr. Mary Dunn out there. And her grandfather worked with my grandfather. And her father is on tape saying, he never seen any european people he knocked around with all the aboriginal people you know never seen never seen a white man out there so he knocked around with all the black people and he talked our lingo and everything so i've got him on tape talking some names that i'd never heard you know but the Dunn family and families like them they employed my people before we went onto the communities and kept us safe so there was a particular thing that happened was called the Hornet Bank Massacre, if anyone heard of that one. Anyway, what happened, there was a massacre where the Aboriginals went in and wiped out this family because of other reasons, I won't go into that. Anyway, the sons were away and when they came back, they made it their lifelong ambition to kill every man, woman and child living along the Dawson River. And I'll probably tell you you their name, they were phrases. And in history, if you look up on wiki or whatever, whatever, he is the biggest mass murderer in uh, Australian history on recorded, but the ones that weren't recorded. So to get to the point was they came onto this property at Warabinda and uh, said, we want to shoot them blacks. and, And this Mr Dunn said, you can't shoot them blacks. They're our blacks. They work for us. So if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be sitting here. He wouldn't be sitting here. The other cousin wouldn't be sitting here. Probably uh, at least two or 3,000 of us wouldn't have said, near. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So did I get off the
0: point then? Uh, <laughs> not really, not really. Okay. It's all one big network. But you were talking b- before about the poplar, uh, the um, phosphorus. So grazies in the phosphorus. The phosphate, yeah. What country does the poplar box grow in typically? It Europe.
1: grows in crap country. But it, but it enhances the dirt. The same with, same with Brigolo. If everyone knows about Brigolo, it's another wattle. But where Briglow is the best grain-producing property, so obviously some waters put nitrogen back in the soil. We didn't know that, you know, back in the old days. But when I started researching, the, and also where Briglow grows, there used to be inland swamps. So some of us older older people might have remembered when we went to school, we learnt about the Briglow belt. The Briglow belt run from Charters Towers all the way down to New, Newcastle. And where the Briglow belt, me and Dad would drive around in the 70s. Out, out rear out where we are. He said, that's strange. I said, what's that? This should be all Briglow country. He said, where Briglow is must be where coal is. And guess what? That's where all the coal mines are. So so by the trees my dad could say we could be driving like at a hundred K. He said, Oh medicine there. I said, Hey? How'd do, he how do work this out? And he's you know, like eighty or ninety. And he could still see I'm driving at a hundred K and he said, Hey medicine there. And I never ever worked out how he did it until just recently. And it was about what trees were there, what the colour of the soil was, what the fall of the land was, but I finally worked it out. And um, there's a famous one that everyone probably knows about is Gumby Gumby. It's everywhere, but we're not making money out of it. Somebody else, some foreign people are making money out of it. And whether they got the right one is another story. But um, I didn't know where I was going to go with that.
0: Uh, medicine on on the highway?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So you'd have to
0: look for certain
1: species. So say our Gumby Gumby, the first tree you might look for would be uh, what they call Morton Bayash. Another one that we'd look for is what they call False Sandalwood. So Morton Bayash is Eucalyptus tessellaris. The False Sandalwood is M- Emrophilia Mitchelli. I don't know whether I'm saying some of these words right, but... or M. Moff- Moff- i got no teeth, so I can't pronounce it good. But uh, uh, a bit of bark, which is another type of tree. Uh, actually, the foreign, foreign plant is prickly pear. Prickly pear loves the same soil as Gumby Gumby. But way, uh, Dale's got one grown in his yard, on the coast where it shouldn't be, and it still grows, but hasn't got the same qualities. So when you grow a tree out of where it is, and the minerals that are coming out of the so- soil to make that tree magic medicine, I don't think it's the same. So if I, I've got trees growing out where I am and I prune them, look after them, and you've got to pick them at the right time. Once again, if you don't pick them at the right time, they haven't got the right medicine. But the bonus with mine is, what I feel, is that if I pick it, I grow it, I pick it, I make it, and I give it to someone, it's more powerful because it came off my land. And also the things when you make stuff, what my dad always said, like these things here, every piece, every scraping you take off, you've got to put your mind into it. So, especially the weapons. So, you're, you're making a null and null and I'm making it for Dale. Please protect Dale. Please protect Dale. Please protect Dale. So, it might take you two days, three days to make that, and you get your sweat, wipe the sweat in. Um, if he's totem we'll say, an emu, right, now we've got Lindsay. Oh! Hey. Now we've got linseed oil, but I would put emu fat on there for his totem. Why? I'd put my sweat in. Pardon th- me?
0: Yeah? Wh- why? What are some of the reasons why? Okay.
1: Well, we put any sort of animal fat in, but it would be preferable to put your totem fat in, because that's your nulla that I'm making for you. That's when you make it, but by rights, he should make his own, mm. and he should pick his own tree. Mm. So people that come out there, like me, like Johnny, came out just recently, and he, well actually 12 months now. And when he came out first, he didn't know too much because he was a city slicker. He actually lived in Brisbane here for quite a few years. And so first of all, I showed him the trees and I said, now it's your turn to pick your own tree. And when you pick your own tree, that's more important.
0: What would be a fairly standard process in picking a tree or negotiating that? Say Grandad's driving down the highway or I've been driving (laughs) with you and you sing out, hey, boom there. Yep. What would be a process involved there?
1: Well, first of all, once again, the fall of the land. What species is grown? And usually, most of the weaponry wood grows on red, rocky, little tiny pebbly soil, and it's really infertile. It's not good for anything else but growing rosewood, and it's usually on rises. Very rarely, it's on a flat, but in some cases, it is around Daringa area. But most places, it's up on the hills, and then you—that's that's your rosewood. Your lancewood's the same. Right, eh? Yeah.
0: And then in selecting a piece of timber or choosing a piece of timber?
1: Well, look for the bend. So, just should hold up one of them boomerangs,
0: any one, doesn't matter.
1: There's all different shaped boomerangs. So, obviously, the tree determines the shape of a boomerang. And and I was really disturbed when I seen that 60-minute program. So, with this fellow's help, we're going to put it on the internet and say, and we're going to put little arrows on it, you know? And say so you probably could pass that around, but the bends the wood is actually bent. So because of the elbow of the tree, you know, so the tree's like that, that's the one. And you can get it out of the root too. But you can you can get it out of there. But the tree determines what it is. So that one's actually a big bird boomerang. The one the other one, normal one that you got that this one here. This is the one everyone's used to, you know? That, that is the most perfect boomerang I've ever seen. Reason being, you see the circles? The circles are knots. So I don't know whether anyone uses an axe cutting chips for fire. When you've got a piece of pine, you cut it down. Hey, which way that the axe go? Around that knot, eh? Hey. So obviously the knot is the strongest part. And so, that, so once again, could you imagine what that bend looked like? So this bend would look like that. It had a branch coming out there. Had another branch coming out there, and another one here, so that tree had three branches coming out. So that what makes that a top quality boomerang. That would probably kill a kill a human, kill a kangaroo.
0: What's what's that timber?
1: This is rosewood once again. So it's acacia roxodormon or some name like that. The lancewood I was talking about is acacia shirleyi. Is that it? That's lancewood. No, that, that nullarbor is. That one there, but. You could probably pass them two nulla nulls around, one's rosewood and one's lancewood. Now this one here was for uh, in close fighting and for knocking goannas out of a tree. The other one was for fighting humans. So if I threw my good one at a human, he could pick it up and throw it back at me. But if I throw that lancewood one at him, it hopefully will shatter and the weapon is no use anymore.
0: So. Is it OK to talk about that experience with the, the throwing sticks in the University of Queensland Anthropology Museum? Absolutely. We were looking at a whole range of objects which were identified as throwing sticks. Um, and there was uniformity and there was uh, all sorts of things that made them regular and, and there was a, an ongoing story. In all of those, each of those objects, there were similarities that led them to be kind of related. And Uncle, Uncle Steve and Uncle Milton and uh, uh, Aunty Lee, Uncle Kenny, Jamie Lee, a whole group of us were there, and I was able to identify by some instinct that the, the timber was probably an acacia, but Uncle Steve said, let me pick it up. We, had, you know, we were able to interact. How did you determine the difference? I thought it might have been rosewood because of its color and the grain and some of the dark color to it, mm-hmm. but what happened when you pick it up? How could you tell, what was... I can't remember, but... Oh, pardon, me. <laughs> pardon, me, pardon me, we're kind of leading that, but yeah. the, the lancewood's much lighter Yes. So all the other visual indicators... Yeah.
1: So you can't mistake it. If you want to pass them to Nullum on the strand, you'll see what we're talking about. So the rosewood is the one with a bit of white on it, and feel the weight of that, and feel the weight of the Lancewood one. But also, oh, this whole heap of stories of all those wood. Each one of those pieces of wood has still got another story. The Lancewood's a wonderful story, but mm-hmm. I don't know whether we'll get time to tell that one. Yeah. Where, where do you want to go with that? Well, it seems that we're passing around, we might go to the Lancewood. Now, the reason it's called Lancewood, it's an acacia, acacia Shirley eye, they call it. And when you see it, you're flat-out galloping a horse through it or even walking through it. And it's really fine. When it's really small, it's like Lancewood, I suppose. You know? It's like a spear, like you know? Even smaller than that, you know, like a, like a spear. So in the first instance, um, when we went to war again, fighting humans again, fighting other tribes, we would get the lancewood, so that wood is good, what you got there, but the bark is poison. So when you're making those type of things, you've got to watch out, you don't get a piece of bark in you. One of my mates did, into his thumb, and it ate the flesh away. So when we go to, go to warfare, we could have it all smooth like those and nulla but on the end, leave the bark. So when we poke that spear into you, no matter how, even if you don't die today, depends on how fit you are. Is how long you live. Obviously, you just if you get stabbed with one of those, you've got to cut it open and you've got to get every piece of um, every piece of bark out of you. So that's one. That was the bad use for it. And the other uses for boomerangs, spears, uh, proper or spear tips. Uh, but the other secret of that lancewood. <coughs> It also grows in crappy country. Dad reckoned even kangaroo don't stop to eat there, you know, because there's there's no grass. Anyway, I said, well, he told me a story one day, and it was about the black wallaroo. I don't know whether anyone's seen a wallaroo. It's a kangaroo, big kangaroo, muscly, big rippling muscles, and he got a square jaw too, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he very, ooh, look, don't muck around with me, you know. Tail too. And the biggest, thickest tail. And he lives there by himself. He's a loner. He do not live with a whole heap of other uh, Wallaroos. But anyway, if you see him with another Wallaroo, well, that's his woman. So they're mating. And OK, anyway, he lives in there. Just, be- just before that, I'll say, the other thing Dad told me, so you never gallop your horse through because you get a piece size of a cigarette in a horse that'll kill a horse. Um, and when the storm come, when the wind come, get the hell out, get out, get out of that scrub as quick as you can, because when the wind blow them, because they're so brittle, these little ones down the bottom, they snap off and they fall over themselves like that, you know, so there's spikes and spears everywhere on the ground. So that's the reason why the Wallaroo lives in there. He's not living there for feed because there's nothing there, he's living there for protection Anyway, he told me the story about the Wallaroo and the Wallaroos bouncing along and the spikes there like that. The Wallaroo know where everyone of them spikes are and the dingo chased him. And he's hopping and hopping, that dingo just about grabbed him and he did a sharp turn. The dingo impaled himself on a stick. So that was the story Dad was telling me. And I thought, oh
0: yeah, okay. What happens when you're mucking around on a Friday night? Hey, or when we do it's, the silly stuff. Yeah, <laughs> stand them up and what? It-
1: yeah, yeah, me and me and his uncle, he lived with me for a couple of, couple of years out there. Anyway, whatever Dad told us, we'd try to experiment more, so we went further. Anyway, so we got these little ones, little ones about that round, you know, and they stand up like this, and um, we ended up having a, one of those lancewood sticks there, and I got had a blockage, so we went down like that, and uh flame got us, you know, so he dropped the stick, and when he dropped the stick down, she just went off like a rocket engine. Oh, okay, so... We couldn't work out what did it, but it was the bark of the, of the lancewood, so we rolled up balls and made, it, made this big rocket engine noise, you know. Then I looked at, i got a tree in my yard, it's called camphor Laurel, and when you crush it up, it smells like uh, the camphor blocks. And I said, hey, what if we, and it was like a cannon, you know. And I said, what if we get one of them, all them leaf there, and roll him up into a big, tight ball, and then get that stick, and we poke him, poke him down inside, poke him down with the stick, and see what happens so we poked it down there wait wait next minute poof. it shot it out you know higher than this shot it out higher than this and when it went poof, like that and it was all like little carpets floating down all red hot carpets floating down we said, oh that's bloody fantastic you know yeah, yeah yeah so we said this is our fireworks so then we've got another tree which is called cypress pine and if you ever burn cypress pine it crackles and spits You've got to be careful to throw throw spark on you, you know. So I got that cypress pine and chipped a bit off and threw that and all these things shooting out the bar. Oh, that's good. So then we went and got ochre, different colour ochre. And, oh, green, purple, So who's to say we didn't have our fireworks like that, eh, before the Chinese,
0: eh? <laughs> uh, well, that's all still around the one tree, the poppy box. All still box. around the one tree, yeah. And then what about this one?
1: Oh, we have got the most important one was the didge, but in my country we didn't make the didge. Oh, we couldn't play the didge. I said to me dad later on I didn't really want to get into to make a didges because there's a lot of work in that. Once again find the tree, you won't get a perfect didge, then you've got to fill it up and it takes you a week to make it. But anyway um, I said to dad before he passed, I said dad what if I uh, could I make a didge? Because that's one thing I've made. He said you can make it but you can't play it. So he basically said, "We probably would have cut the tree and traded it, so that would have been our money to the tribes up north." So I don't know whether everyone knows, but the Didge only came from Cape York and Arnhem Land. It never came from any other part of this country. But today today people expect Aboriginals to play a didge, and basically that's what, that's what we um, do. You know I, I, don't, I don't want to do it because it's against my belief. But if other people want to do it and play for the tourists, that's fine. The same with the art, as you know. The dot art never came from any, any of this area. It came from the central desert area. The x-ray art came from the Northern Territory area. area. In our area, area, it's all stencil. So I don't know whether anyone's been to Carnarvon and seen all the stencils on the caves. So you put your hand up and pff, put the oak in your mouth and pff, spray paint and it's your hand. You put your boomerang up there. <laughs> you put a kangaroo foot up there. <laughs> but what that is telling you is this one here, as far as I know, means give. The left always means give. So you see a whole heap of lips. So when you go to these rock arts, you have a look. Oh, yeah. Oh, most of them are lips, so I come here. Please protect me. I mean you no harm. You know? And that's what you're saying when you put that hand up there. But when you see the right, you took something. So when you see the right, next time, have a look and see what they took. And beside that would be a boomerang, a spear, an emu foot, or whatever, whatever. That one there means many, when you see two of them. So it might be left. I come to give myself to your country. By the way, I took many of these. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you can actually read it, read it to people who go,
0: oh, big deal, you know? Oh, well, that's another... That's a whole another night, maybe whole, come back tomorrow night. A whole heap, yeah. But, um, so we've, poplar box is still there and lancewood, but then there's the rosewood and all the other hard timbers and talking about the, the poplar box for didgeridoo trade mm-hmm. and the other timbers for, for trade.
1: Yeah, the rosewoods would be the most, in the central Queensland area, would be the most powerful tool out, most powerful wood out. So history says that my tribes and all the tribes on the Dawson River, we were the fierce Dawson River blacks because they couldn't get across the river until about the 1850s. We kept on repelling, and because of our weaponry, so see, see the, the, the weaponry, oh, that's the that that's, that's woman's stick. But my uh, grandmother, she was the best. She could knock six men out with that. <laughs> no one mucked around with her. But um, it's a yam stick, so digging for yams, but also a fighting stick. And uh, once again, I was showing someone there before, you hold like that. We shouldn't know this, but Dad got off his mother. This is woman business. But if you hold it like that, well, obviously someone will smash you on the, on the knuckles if, if you hold it like that, so you've got to hold it like that, and you can actually operate it really good, and you can actually block, you know, put it down in front of your body. But um, I've been waiting for some of my nieces to come out to see if I can show them, but the new generation is pretty... I don't know what's going on there.
0: Lots of, lots of things, but... but
1: <laughs> this way here. Eh?
0: <laughs> Too busy looking at that thing. So this is uh, obviously for, for providing food, providing yep. all, like multi-purpose. And but then protection. there's also Grandad Jack's little two ones.
1: Oh, Well, see, so yeah, that, that's the woman one. Then you've got the two nulla nullas, but think of, picture the two nulla nullas without the knob on the end. And if you think of Chinese kung fu type of stuff, we had two fighting sticks. So Dad's brother was the one that knew how to use it. Anyway, Dad told me a story about, they were ringers, they were cattle workers, and they had a scrub bull charge them. So a bull that never seen no humans. And um, back in those days, they used to shoot them to, because uh, they didn't want to get the other cattle wild. But anyway, this one charged Grand, uh, Uncle Jack on the ground, and Uncle Jack had them two fighting sticks in his saddle. And he grabbed them quick, and that bull charged him, and he stepped aside hit that bull on the kneecap, and as he went down, hit him in the back of the head, dead. So like a thousand dollar, a thousand dollar? A thousand kilo scrub bull, two hits. And so that's, <laughs> there's a funny story there too, I suppose, but.
0: Another one, afterward. Hmm? Afterward, but that just indicates yeah. the the, um, the understanding of you know the pressure points yeah. and these kinds of things which come into play with the, the not only the, the, the bigger women's one, but also the men's yeah. one there.
1: But you know what, it sounds very vicious, but it wasn't. Right, Um, right, right. But, say me and this fellow had a disagreement, it'd be more a test of skill. And the same with when you want to use those novels, you've got to use them like that, you've got to rock them. So just enough to, what do you call it, disable?
0: Yeah, or demonstrate your Demonstrate your skill. Come to a mutual agreement? Yeah.
1: So it wasn't kill straight away, it was demonstrate skill. So me me, and him fighting, I'd try to hit him on the elbow, make him drop it. I'd try to hit him on the kneecap, make him fall to one knee. Then you'd pull that up there and say, do you want to keep going? And there we go. No. And, and then get up and shake hands. The, right. other, the other part is he'd probably stand over there behind, uh, not behind the wall, but over a bit further. If we really had a dispute. He'd have three spears and a woomera. Where'd that woomera? Ah, here we go. We're leading to this. This isn't actually... The proper woomera, This is my woomera, And I asked Dad, "Was it all right to make one of these?" He said, "In a pinch, but it's not proper." So you actually put your spear in there, and you hold it with things like that, and then you—man, can you propel it? Can you propel it? You could probably throw a spear a good fifty meters, but you'd have to—you wouldn't really kill them from there. You'd have to get like twenty or thirty meters close to something. But anyway, he'd have this. He'd had three spears. he goes stand over there, he's got to plant his foot, which means you cannot move. You've got to keep your foot where it is, plant your foot. Then i throw the three spears at him, and he would, you know, use this to deflect the spears. Dad said, you never go like that, though. You <laughs> De- deflect the spear, then that way you're going to get it through your, through your guts. But anyway, his turn, he knocked them all away. Um, my, my, oh yeah. He, he, I threw spears at him, so he knocked them away. Now it's his turn to throw spears at me. And I knock them all away, that's it. We shake hands, all good we're equal.
0: A mutual respect, eh? Hey? But
1: if his spear got me, I was in the wrong. And Dad even reckoned the tribes used to sometimes stand across the creek or the river and throw spears at each other just for a sport. And if we got one of them, well, it was meant to be. He was something wrong with him, you know?
0: And what's this timber here, this one?
1: Oh, this one is uh, sandalwood. We don't normally make woomers out of that. This is like the emerofilia It's not the sandalwood that you buy incense sticks. It's our Australian sandalwood. But the grain is so beautiful, that's why That's why I did it. But really, the purpose of this wood is smoking. In our particular country, you see the smoking ceremonies. This. This... The leaves of that, we get that, and we probably put it in one of these, coolermans and we light up, and we could smoke this whole place out, you know, with a couple of hand pulls. It just smokes so much. We, When we smoke people's houses out, you're flat out seeing your hand in front of your face, you know?
0: What produces that smoke?
1: No n- no idea, but it's the just... The oil? A, oh, oil yeah, yeah, I yeah. yeah. Okay. That, I don't know whether the oil produces it, but, yeah, probably. You when it? you get the leaf, you crush the leaf in your hand, you can smell a beautiful perfume it actually leaves a lovely beautiful perfume around and inside the wood if i was if i was to hand this around you had a knife and scrape that you could smell smell the perfume there's more oil in the wood than it, in actual fact the leaf in actual fact i'm about to distill some of this bolt sandwood oil to see what it see what it does but um what's the other story with that one? Oh yeah um the twigs of the of this tree right put it in the fire and all the sap runs at the end, of the end of the stick. You get that sap for warts and growths and whatever. So it takes all the growth off. So nearly every tree has not just one purpose; it's got multi purposes.
0: Mm. And what colours that sap? How does? It, how, how would you identify that process? Huh? Well, I
1: don't know.
0: It's <laughs> white milky. Hey, it's and yeah. you want a green, fairly green, fairly leather, green, not the, teeth. The woody, no, black
1: one. Very rare. Yes, couldn't be a dead one because it's got no sap. Right. Right. So, you break a green green one off and it's got sap in it. And I don't know whether you've seen it in the fire, some wood. If you've got a wood fire, you see that oozing out, you know. But it's about observations. You know, people observed observe this for years, and do people use their eyes now? Not really, are you? The kid... Where you know, where there, look there, you know. And they can't smell nothing anymore, you know. They can't heat. they can't see, they can't smell, they can't hear. And you know, like that's the secret of being an Aboriginal Yeah, and you can't sort of do it now as an adult. When them kids are growing up, they need to do it straight away. And that's what we're teaching the kids at school too, use your eye, you know. And yeah, there's so many things to talk about.
0: We could find other places to move into, but I guess, are there any questions or any additions or any supplements that anyone's thrown, picked up along the way?
1: Do you feel like, um, sorry, come on. Yes.
0: It's Olivia here from um, There you Hi, oh, it is too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, a lot of the stories you're saying come from
0: your father, they, yeah. did you feel like, um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, that war history past passed, passed to you and the stories that your grandfather would tell would, would be around these kinds of weapons or is that just because we're talking about the wood?
1: Yeah, well, all that information is passed down, you know, so Dad said, we're going to make a nulla nulla, and it's out of this tree, and it takes this process. So everything takes a process. So when we even search for this kullerman, yeah, you find the right tree, because this one's, this one's near perfect, this one, but some got holes in them, you know. The didgeridoo, once again, you would never get a perfect didge. you've got to patch the hole. What would you patch it with? Uh, probably native beeswax. So I don't know whether you've seen the native bees, got a black wax and a real tiny looking thing. And he's good, good to rob his nest because he don't sting you. But there's one that, so you've got two types of native bee in our area. So if you really look closely, when you see them little tiny ones floating around, one's black, he's called what we call gubba. And another one got a white dot on his head, but he got really good eyes to see the white dot on his head. And um, the one with the white, dot on his head he's say he take the honey take it we don't want it but the one one that's black you get up your nose in your eye you go in your ear try because he can't sting you so yeah you gotta uh, uh. so we rather we rather the other be beeswax and <laughs> the once again the beeswax is very important in weapon making as well so say we, oh, i don't know so you make we make a spear so you get a black boy spear. Black boy tree with a big, long one like that, and then uh, we put a wooden tip in. So where the where the where the, the where the flower is up there, you can't, and it's tapered from there up to the flower. Well, you can't throw it that way because the heavy ends on the bottom. So anyway, so we get we get it in there, and we holler it out, and we get a nice big wooden barb, you know, big sharp spike, and we put that into the into the into the black boy spear and may, we may use the resin of black boy It's really really good glue but at the same time sinew out the kangaroo tail you can actually when you cut a kangaroo tail you can see all the white sinews that's our string so then we wrap that string around the black boy spear to hold the thing in and put it out in the sun and then what happens it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and holds that in there really really tight so when it gets wet it'll get loose and that thing will fall out. So what you've got to do is get the native beeswax and put the beeswax around it. But if you put beeswax around it by itself, it'll, it'll rub off and fall off. But mix it with sand, it sets like concrete. So we use the beeswax also for spear making and also for um, stone axes and the sinews. So when I go back to Wurrindu, the emus are looking really good. It's going to blow a few emus away, get the fat, because the fat's very lovely uh, for making medicine, and get the sinews out their leg to make the stone axe. So if you imagine, imagine the stone like that, we've got to, got to cut a stick like that, and that goes onto the stone, and then we pull those two pieces together with the kangaroo with the emu sinew. Once again, if it gets wet, it'll come loose. So once again, coating coat him with that and sometimes and glue him in with the uh, black boy resin. So the black boy plant is unbelievable what you can do with that.
0: What are the, there's multiple um, ways that the black, the, the Xantheria, the black boy is really significant. What are, there's, there's a whole series there. I think there's. Well the resin for a start.
1: Yeah. Uh, it attracts the bees when they're in flower and you can actually lick, lick the resin off the flower, uh, the honey, you know, it's beautiful. So we go around licking all the black boy plants, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, it tracks the bees so you know which way the bees are or where they're located. The way... Dad used to tell me some ways of tracking the bee. So we were talking about that little tiny bee. And I said, how hey, you track them? He said, oh, you can get a little bit of flour and you can throw it on that bee. And because they're so tiny, you can follow him to the tree. But guess what? eyesight you'd have to... But the kids can see it, so you take kids out with you. Their eyesight is so brilliant. So if, you, if they came to that black boy thing, you throw the flower on them. Another thing is a cobweb. Dad would get a cobweb and put on it. And you can much easier to see, you know? So once again, the importance of that tree, the importance of the nectar, the importance of the... Um, even, even when the tree's dead. So if you see a black boy tree dead, pick up all the pieces and there's your fire starter. And you go and buy these fire starters from to 10 or whatever.
0: Why is that? You were describing at the night what that exactly is. Well, the resin's
1: still in the, in, the, in the leftovers.
0: The segments of the trunk. Yeah. And so the resin's really you can, flammable. You
1: can, you can actually see it. You can see all the reddish. So uh, we go and collect that resin. So when you see a uh, black boy and where the grass goes down like that, when a fire goes through, that's when it oozes resin. So after the fire goes through there, you look around underneath, but you've got to be careful when you lift up the fronds. Could be a snake under there. But anyway. <laughs> lift it up with a stick first, and then down the bottom, you'll see these like little marbles, and that's how the resin oozes out the tree, and they fall into the hollows, and they worth. They would have been worth money. People would have traded that. So people, we just seen us. where did we see them black boys? Just North side. Yeah, so there's a whole heap of black boys somewhere over this way. We have to go and check that out because um, each foot before it comes up to the grassy bit, I think they said a
0: hundred years old. Yeah, well that's with yeah. the the yeah
1: yeah. Yeah, so say so see one six foot. I've seen them six foot, so six hundred years old, which is, which is another thing in regards to trees. When you see a tree and you know it, and it it could be it, it could be. 600, 400, 300 years old. And other people walk past and, and me and my dad say, oh, my God. They say, what? That tree. What? That tree should be that big. You know, so you get freak trees like that, yet a person goes and cuts them down. But I wouldn't even dream of touching it because it's, because it's that old, you know. But other people want to cut it, you know. Mm. And that leads us
0: to the budgeroo. Mm. <laughs>
1: Where, you know, we Boudjuru. Boudjuru? I didn't bring it. Nothing here. we left it. But anyway, Bujaroo is the bark that we wrapped our people up in to bury them. So the bark sil- <laughs> bark cylinders. And the other, other part of that is the reason why Wurubinda was formed where it was, because we're full of Bujaroo. And we had a lovely creek flowing behind my house, which is called the Mimosa Creek and because we had the bark off these trees, so you could actually take the bark, or say this was a tree here. When I went to school, I'm learning on the circumference, you know, pi r squared, or whatever the hell it is, you know? <laughs> anyway, Dad reckon just put one tree there and another tree there, and that's how, the, uh, that's how long the bark will be when you take it off, right? So the bark would come off, and it's like sheets of, especially during the war years, when you couldn't get these even even the Graziers had budgeroo huts and bujaroo houses, but that bark would last 100 years if it didn't burn down. Post, the post, what they used the post for was fencing. So Dad put a fence down in the 1930s or something, and he went up, we went out to the place in the 1990s. He said, there should be a fence line over here. So we walked over, he and off. The fence line was there, but there was no wire It had rusted out a long time ago but the posts were still in the ground. It's termite resistant, it won't burn, so there's more more qualities with it. Um, But we came across the biggest budgeroo that I've ever seen, but me nephew reckons it's another bigger one. And this budgeru was three men holding hands around the base of it. In the DPI book it says it only grows to 10 metres, this one's 40 metres high. So obviously this tree could have been there before Captain Cook even hit Australia. But if you get a sawmill fella come in, oh, that's a beauty, you know. And you can, when I bought, had some boomerangs, but we didn't bring them. We don't normally make boomerangs out of them, but because this tree had dropped a branch, I said, I can't leave this line here. So I'm going to make a whole series of miniature stuff and put, and put into a glass cage, you know. Because when you feel that wood, if you're into it, oh, can you feel the power? So people might think we're silly, but. Uh, you can feel the power. We we talk to. So so I went and got mm. a porcupine. I got to say thank you, ancestors. Mm. No matter where I get it, whatever we take, but I don't really want to take anything off this country unless I really have to. Mm. So pre- preferably, once again, those weapons come off my country. They're powerful, but if I got weapon off this country, it wouldn't be as powerful to me because it's not my traditional country. But not many people think about that anymore. We think me and my nephew and me and his uncle, they think too deep. Would they think, well, that even our own relations think we're crazy? Well, we'll
0: that, hey. Yeah, and that, that um, you know, you're a maker, you're a sculptor mm-hmm. in many ways. That comes over into what I do in, in my art practice, and now Uncle Milton made that first um, women's digging stick mm-hmm. for the first time Grandad Tim's story was painted in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Yep. So all of that links back to all of the cultural knowledge and the sensitivity, and particularly around protocols, around the care in the the even the invitation to to ha- have access to re- resources, and then the the asking of protocol and, and uh, process, and then the interacting with the timber or the other, particularly an, uh, particularly animal animal life. If there's a life taken, there's there's a very specific process oh. and way that that occurs. So yep. uh, often. Conversation can be quite kind of surface level, but what we've been fortunate to do with the contemporary art practice is to be able to bring and start to open up the discussions around all the depth, the significant depth of the protocols and all the other different cultural and spiritual consideration, as well as ecological consideration that comes into an object. And so, as Uncle Steve being a carver and your father being a carver, Uncle Milton being a carver, it's not just a wooden thing, is it? No.
1: Like I said, you've got to put your mind and your sweat into it. If you don't do that, and you've got to be in the right frame of mind too, you know. So if someone's making a violin or something, I'm told that they've got to think sweet, sweet music is going to play sweet. Same with the guitar, whatever, whatever. Well, that's the same thing with anything, even that Culloman. you got to put some thought into it and it's going to support the baby, and you know. Mm. Mm. Or whatever you made it for. We've given a few of them actually to a... Daycare down here in Brisbane. Well, actually, Johnny, Johnny Diddy made his first culman and gave it to these people down here, and they take photos of the babies. They put a kangaroo skin in there and they put the baby in. <coughs> yeah, you know, so that's that's the way it would have been. We didn't have a camera back then, but you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Stencil. Uh, maybe I'll ask just how we're doing for time. If anyone can give an indication, I don't have a timepiece. Seven fifteen.
1: But anyway, if you want to ask a question, I've been talking too much, but anything that comes to head, if you want to ask. I was going to ask you, what sort of disputes in debate in terms weapons were used against
0: humans? What would be the typical disputes?
1: Well, it's probably the dispute of people invading our country. And so we were criminals for standing up for the country. And this debate going on in regards to ANZAC Day, so sometimes I think they should acknowledge some of the great warriors, you know. So I say to people today, what if someone had invaded Australia today? Would you defend Australia? So that's all our old ancestors, that's all they were doing. Yet they were criminals, hunted down, chained up, shot. And we're trying to protect our country. And there's acknowledgments, I know one, one warrior that was called Bassa Murray. And he was down in the Toowoomba area, I think. And there was another one that was in Sydney, whatever his name was, but there's a whole series of me mm-hmm. that were warriors, but they reckon, oh, they're bad, them black you know, them black people, you know? So we've got to get... The worst part of all that history is when they hired our own people to shoot our own people. So that Hornet Bank massacre I was talking about, they hired people from New South Wales that had no tribal connection to us and fed them opium, tobacco, give them a gun, so they're basically all off their heads. And they were worse than E.D.R. men. They were worse than the Europeans. They were, they were oof, disgusting. So that's, that's probably the reason why we were ag- aggressive there. But with our own tribes, I think we lived in harmony because we respected everyone's boundary. On the coast, you'd have, like you named all the tribes that are here, mm. so you've got all smaller areas because the food is plentiful. But as you get out west, the the land is bigger. So when you look at an Aboriginal or someone walking down the street, if he's a big tall fella, he came from out west. If he's a little tiny fella, he came from the rainforest. So you can tell, because you wouldn't want to be (laughs) tall as Dale walking around the bloody rainforest, would you? So obviously, you know, so you can actually tell. (laughs) Yeah, from evolution, I think.
0: But, uh, yeah. and you were you were starting to touch on you, said, you used the word harmony uncle you used the word harmony particularly around um, interrelation and, and sort of social organisation
1: oh, oh well our rules were way tougher than what the rules are today there was no adultery you could commit adultery you got spared. you steal from the tribe you got banished you know um, what were the other rules well a whole heap of rules uh, you couldn't marry who you wanted to so when I was a young, young person I could if I was a young person back then, I'd have to marry, say I was 20, I'd have to marry a 40-year-old. I couldn't marry a 20-year-old. Uh, reason being that the 40-year-old woman could teach me stuff. And also, Dad reckoned because of birth control. So after you get past 40 as a woman, is there much chance of having bulk kids, okay? But the young 20-year-old, are all v old you know? But anyway, as I'm get to my age, I'd, I'd get a twenty-year-old woman because I'm probably shooting blanks or whatever, you know. <laughs> so it was a way of, it's a way—it's a way of birth control. Was one part of it, but that
0: knowledge—that knowledge transfer as well.
1: Knowledge transfer. No one ever died alone. So if I'm a granddad and I'm dying on the walkabout, the grandson has to stay till I die, and then do what he has to do with my body. Then he catches up with the other mob so so all our travels was through the dance so the dance was about uh history you know oh we're going to this waterhole now in winter and we're going to that waterhole, and we're going up the mountain in summer and you know so that was all the corroboree type of things but it was also we went out hunting today and we didn't get any bloody kangaroo you know so they had to instead of having books and stuff they told what happened today what happened yesterday mm. what, where they were going to go tomorrow but it was all in that story because we didn't have the book, you know. So all those things were passed down. To, to, to put it into a simple form, it's probably more complex than that. But.
0: And what about the Duringa one where they painted up with the arrows on them? I don't know. Is that you, Uncle one? Milton? It must be Uncle Milton. Um, a Duringa corroboree that involved a body paint that had arrows from convict, uh-huh. convict uh-huh. representation.
1: Yeah, no, it must have been Milton. Uncle Milton, you see Yeah, that yeah I didn't know much too about... Uh, with me, I, I don't do corroboree, I don't do dance. Some other members of the family do dance, so it's like in your own family, I guess. Someone's a muso, someone's a tradesman, someone's a uh, you know, scholar or whatever. And that's the same in the Aboriginal family, so one might be a medicine man, one might be the greatest warrior, one's a very good, clever medicine man, you know? There's not too many medicine men, there was more medicine woman, actually. The medicine man, in our lingo, we call him Yarrabanbari. And that, uh, yeah, sorry, <coughs> and Yaban mean clever, so Yarrabanbari mean clever, clever man. And they were the ones that knew the magic and all the stuff about pointing the bone, making people sick, pulling pulling string and crystal and stuff out of people's bodies. And then when I was a kid, I think thinking, now that's all rubbish, you know? But you know what, it, it, is, it isn't. And then some people say, oh, I don't believe in that. Well, you don't have to believe in it. Especially, not so much today, but back in the old days and even up north, I'd advise you if you go north, never leave your hair anywhere. The hair is the most powerful. My grandmother, every time she combed her hair, brushed her hair, she'd pull that hair out and burn it. Don't ever leave it lying around. Don't ever leave your fingernails lying around. Don't even even leave your clothes on the clothesline. When you, go, when you go out north, never ever leave your clothes on the clothes, on, especially the women, because uh, you heard, heard them about they can sing you and there's people that can still do it. They can still sing that girl and make that girl come to them. Now that sounds like unbelievable, but the people that really, really know with all the ritual practices, like witchcraft. You have to have this special tree and you've got to have this special fat and you've got to have this special feather, you know? So, the emu feathers and emu fat are very, very important to us. Not only in, in everyday living, but
0: in magic. Which way? Hmm? The big emu up there.
1: Um, just the ordinary emu. So, see, see, everyone gets dressed up with feathers on them. You know? So, mm. the feathers are used there feather belts, mm. feather hairbands, feather tails. So, when um, the. The ones down this way, the Western Murrays. And the Desert Air, Air, Air District, they're the ones with all the feathers. Have you ever seen photos of that? And they've got little downs on them. So, one fellow in the dance group is the bleeder. So, he's got to, got to cut himself, and all the rest dip the feathers in and stick them all to their body. So, so it was just using special dances. And they used to make them big, them big, pointy feather hats, but they're all the desert mob out that way but each tribe had different markings mm. each tribe had different initiation type of stuff the northern territory is way completely different to the to the language groups here and that comes
0: a lot of the difference that uncle Steve has done a lot of work in I don't so much use the word revival, it's really just about re embedding or, or embedding it this time. But the, the Gungulu language and the, all the composite language, all the other language that exists in Murumbinda, mm-hmm. 52, 52 I teach.
1: Nation. I teach the Gungulu language in the school, but it's also part of what they call the Biri dialect. Like I said, our, our language group runs all the way up to Charters Towers, and it blows me away where it runs into Mackay and then comes back out. So Mackay was my mother's country. So when my dad first escaped when he ran away. And he went through Mackay and he got picked up by my mother's father. He was at the railway station. And he said from that day onwards, he could communicate with my mother's father. And we didn't even know, didn't even really know until recently. Mum, probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a historian come and said, Mum, you are one of the last of the Yui or Japira people. And she didn't know that. But anyway, Dad was telling me the conversation when we recorded him back in the 70s, that, yeah, when I first got to Mackay, I could understand Mum's father, and then blow me down, now I've done this research, and it just swings in. The language just swings into Mackay and swings back out again. I think I was saying before, all the coastal languages are completely different. So you've got you you Yukon, bear All those ones along the coast are completely different. Get up north, it's even completely different again. So there's basically three groups here, I'd say. you got Bama, they call themselves Bummer up north. So man is Bama. Down where we are, we're Marities. And then we go down a bit further and they're Kuris. And then you got Noongas and all the rest of it right around Australia. But I believe that those people that call themselves Kuris is a dialect. And the people that call themselves Marities is a dialect. And the people that call themselves Bama's. But I only know basically most of Queensland, but. Didn't do too much in New South Wales. Didn't, I don't... I don't... It doesn't really... I shouldn't really look at it. But I just look at our languages around where we are.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what does the contemporary situation see in Worabinda? You've got gungulu language, but then all the other language that's now embedded as part of that story too. Uh,
1: some of them, because a lot of them are lost. But there would be Gungaloo, Bidjara, Iman, uh, Kokeology.
0: Right, right, The right. cookieology
1: mob up there, Hopevale. Mm. They had come down during the Second World War after Wurrubinda, that was a very sad story. In, when the Second World War started, you had the, these missions, Wurrubinda was a Catholic mission. Uh, it was called Cape Bedford then and it was a Lutheran mission. So the government at the time thought that this Lutheran German minister was going to tell these Aborigines to fight against Australia. So they went into Cape Bedford, put them all on a boat, took them down to Cairns, put them on a train, sent them to a place called Boralaba, 40 k's away from Wurrubinda, and then took them into Wurrubinda in the middle of winter. So you're taking tropical aboriginals down into Wurrubinda, it gets down to minus seven there. I've I've been there when it's minus seven. Anyway, they brought them in. My grandma was one of them that ran out and threw blankets around them because they're half naked and naked coming in, in in 1930, whatever it was, 39 or whatever it was and one by one they died. Dad, dad recalls that, say someone died now, someone died at midnight, someone died at 2 o'clock in the morning, someone died at breakfast. In one day seven people died so they put seven people in in the ground but overall 300 people died from Hopevale and that's where this Kuku'ali'ji language is still existing in the in, in Warabinda, but real, really, really sad story. The the the, uh, the cemetery has got all these crosses in one area where they thought these people were. When I, I was the mayor of Warabinda one time, and I got a bloke in to shoot sound waves into the cemetery to see where the graves were, and the crosses don't even depict how many are under that ground. So it's probably a, the saddest story in Warabinda. what happened to those people. We, we were all right, you know, we didn't get massacred, but they did by the flu. They caught the common cold and died. A very sad story. I think you might even see that on um, NITV. I mm. think I've seen it on that one time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Is there much commonality between the and the,
0: and the, Japanese
1: um, the northern mob, like I said, the Bama mob, and Kukauleji, Kukauemiji, up the top there, completely <laughs> can't understand that. The New South Wales language, ooh, couldn't understand that. But the Maori or the Murray language, whoever calls themselves Murray, contain a whole heap of tribes. So yes, so say where Woorabinda is, and then you go up to Charters Towers, there's a this a this Desi Crumpier actually done done all the research and he sent me the document and it's the the dialects of Woorabinda, so the whole fifty the whole fifty-two languages and how it sits, so my language is 16 other tribes, so by the time we get to Charters Towers, they might share 30% of our words. But when we go to the next door neighbor across the river, he's sharing 90% of the words. So the further away is the less shares, and then those people that are up in Charters Towers would be sharing words with the rest to the north. The ones that go down here across the border would be sharing words with the uh, Koori language but your next-door neighbor languages are very close so on our language that we would share would be garamble which yeah. is my grandmother's language uh yui Bora, which is me other grandfather language uh Gangulu, which is this grandmother language uh, what's that before we, we, we have to learn four languages to communicate mm. and if you go get a wife you have to learn their language too and the wife has to learn your language not to an extent but you know so if you wanted a woman hey you wanted a woman and you went across the river to get that woman you wouldn't be living there you have to bring her back on your country but other people have other people have different things that they were told but i'll just go with what my dad told me yeah so other people sometimes want to say "Ah, oh, that wasn't true and and yeah, the pronunciation of the word wasn't like that, but I, didn't. I said, well, okay then, what was it? Please tell me, I could be wrong, I'm not, I'm not right. So all the words that I'm talking in the school, I even said to myself, I'm not pronouncing some of them words right. Because when my dad passed, we found all these videotapes and audio tapes and we started to record them. And I so, said, damn, I've been saying that word wrong. So I should have listened to dad more closely. But we started recording him in the 70s. And then from the 70s right up until now, other certain relations would they'd visit him and do a videotape. And then they'd do the um, CDs and then they do, you know. So as, as it evolved, my dad was always the same, eh? right through. Eh? Yeah,
0: consistent. Yeah,
1: always consistent. And he's clear mind. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable, clear mind. He could work with you today and 40 years later he'd remember your name and where you was. Unbelievable. All the people in Wurrubinda used to come to him to ask about their grandparents, their uncles, their aunties and they'd walk out with their jaw on the floor, Right? Eh? Yeah, he had an uncle and he was a brother and sister to that one and she... <laughs> he was unbelievable. I and that man... You'll never find another man like him, eh? I think Aunty Ibe's the same as him, right. Aunty Ivey Booth. Boots. Yeah, she's still clear as crystal, you know? But there's not too many around, not anymore anyway. I was privileged enough when I went to Wurrubinda for a holiday, actually, 28 years ago. Went out there because the 91 flood and all that big flood happened and Dad reckoned, come on, we go out here, we we'll get all the medicine, all the medicine to be up. And I got out, got out to Wurrubinda and they said, you want a job? I said, not really. I'm working for a Caterpillar in, in Mackay, you know, making big money. I said, hang on, when will Christmas come? And I'll come out and I'll have a go, you know? No good, I never left. but. Um, the amount of knowledge that I've got out there, before I would have been a mongrel old diesel fitter, Probably all worn out and broken by now. But um, the every day, like people say they're bored, I don't know what the hell I'm doing tomorrow. I wake up and whatever's happening, you know, oh it's raining so we'll do this, or, oh it's not raining, or, oh it's cool, or, we're going up the mountain, we're going to the river, we'll go hunting. Mm. So it's so beautiful to live out there
0: seasonal too and i I'm, maybe to start to sort of wind, wind things up but mm-hmm. have, I, I know a, a number of the funny stories from the kids in the learning of the language and the learning of material culture and, and this type of thing yep what's the first funny story that for the, the kids at school yeah that'll come up Oh, <laughs> uh, i don't know
1: um i was actually you know like it's not all about the language it's about bush skill and all the rest so lighting a fire you know how do you light a fire and how should you prepare it so don't escape and it's about going out bush. So I said to the kids one day, I said, we're going to go out bush in the car. What should we put in first? What should we put in the car? One kid reckoned, grandma? I said, yeah, okay, then. <laughs> we can put grandma in, they reckon <laughs> Telephone, go on then. Anyway, they kept on putting up all these things. I said, what about water, you know? And what about an axe, you know? But the young kids don't know that anymore, you know. But that was the first thing we'd throw in a car: water, axe. Make sure you had a wheel spanner and a spare tyre, in the modern way. But them Aboriginals out there, you—they see them pulled up on the side road. What happened? Oh, we haven't got a wheel spanner. But well, where's your spare? Oh, we didn't have one. But you know, it's—I'm not blaming them, blaming them for that. It's just that they weren't. The younger generation. Not—I'm not saying all, oh, but some were not taught that way, and they're too busy into their... Well, especially these days with their iPads and stuff, you know. But, but telling them that type of stuff and then how do you hunt a creature and what is that, what is that footprint on the ground, you know. Mm. But the, 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 the best ones is, oh, they're not funny stories, but um, the, the thing that I like the most would be um, saying, you know, before we had dinner plates, we had this, before we had a knife, what did we use? So I keep throwing the question back to the kids. Uh, how did we boil water? Does anyone does anyone in the room know how we would have boiled water? You can say whatever you want. If you got a yeah, have an imagination and say, how do you think we boiled water? Anyone want to have a go at it? So we, as I say before, we had pots and pans and saucepans. So so today we get say get the medicine, the gumby gumby. We put in a saucepan, we boil the water, and then we drink drink the liquid. Okay, what happened when before Captain Cook had here? So, does anyone got an idea or have one other guess of how we boiled water? He said that? Very good. So, how would you do, do with the hot rocks? You just took all the fun out of it. <laughs> so, say, say you had this. It could be one, but it's a burl. You see them big lumps off the side of the tree? That could be one way. So, you light the fire and you put these rocks in, and then what rocks should you put in? The ones that don't explode? but they're usually the shiny, smooth river rocks. And if you've got the wrong one, it'll explode. But the, the shiny ones, depending on how much you want to boil it, is um, fire here, and when the rock is hot enough and you've got your water and your leaf in there, boof, put it in and it boils the water. That could be a way. The fastest way for me, Malalucas, though, eh? We talk about Malalucas. All the rivers nearly got a malaluka hanging off it, eh? So, in a lot of our creeks, out, our way is very sandy. So, you dig a hole in the sand and you put a big piece of Malaleuca bark in and you put your leaf and whatever you want to do and you do the rocks again. So, say you want to inhale, Say, so you get the gum leaf, throw it in the water, throw the rock in, throw a kangaroo skin out, over your head and then inhale the fumes or do the gumby gumby the same way and drink the water. So when you put it in a saucepan, what did you miss out on? You missed out on the mineral out of the rock, missed out the ash on the rock, missed out the chemical out of the bark, which combined with the leaf to make a more powerful medicine. So you've got all these chemical reactions that you don't got now when you put it in a pan. And then the other part of the medicine is, did you pick it at the wrong time? So see, this Gumby Gumby. It's also got spots. Sometimes I don't touch it. If it's got spots, it won't do you no good. And then it all depends on when you pick it, in the morning or the afternoon. Usually in the morning is the best to pick anything because the water and juice is still there. By the time the afternoon comes, it's gone. And the same with dying of thirst, you know, people walk past water all the time and see all your blue gums around you, all them white looking and they got sort of a blue stain in them. Or it's probably more a grey stain, I guess. But anyway, all the waterways, you have a look, and they're all blue gums, and if your waterway has got no water in it whatsoever, those gum trees suck up so much water overnight, and if you haven't got an axe, break a branch off, put it up in the fork of a tree, and you'll get a, you'll get a mug full of water in the morning. Try to do it now, nothing. You won't get nothing. And the water tastes just like rainwater. And that's how everyone starves, even out in the desert where there's a blue gum. They're still sucking up water, you know. So that's something to remember. If you just, if you haven't got an axe, just break a nice branch up, you know, like like that, about six foot or whatever, however long it is, and put up in the fork of a tree. And away you go. Just wait, just wait a couple of seconds, and that water will run out. So, so like the like I say, there's secrets in all the trees, there's secrets in all the plants, there's secrets in all the animals. But no one look anymore no one use their dilly you know maybe that's a good place to wrap it up yep i think so I felt pretty good once again any more yes. questions before we go yeah yes yeah that's a good thing yep and that's why you hear a lot of people call him uncle even though we're not so the next line above is uncle so he calls me uncle, cause no, actually you should be calling me Poppy, eh? Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. well, right, he should be calling me Poppy, so I'm granddad to him. But that's Aboriginal thing. But as for other people, that's very respectful. Yeah, to call call Aboriginal old men with grey hair, I suppose uncle. But no good. I had an old girl with grey hair calling me calling me uh, calling me uncle. Because I felt a bit uncomfortable about that. This, this lady was like in her 90s. Hey, Uncle. <laughs> but, she, but she was the truth. It was the truth, you know. And I've got another old cousin out there. He's 85. And I, they got, I got into trouble for not calling him calling him uncle. But me and him are the same line of those 50... 50 what would I say? How many nephews? 52 or something? 64. 64 nephews and nieces. So this old fella out there is my brother. And his mother... Would be my brother. Yeah? No, sister. No. Yeah, no, grandmother. Your grandmother was my sister. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you meant Grandad Campbell, pardon me. Yeah, right.
1: yeah Grandad Campbell's my brother, because mm. his mother was my dad's sister. Mm, mm, mm. And then his mother, his mother's mother, was grand, my dad's sister again. So it's, it's not that complex.
0: Mm. <laughs> right, eh? yeah, yeah, Well, uh, I'd like to say thank you, Uncle Steve. Thank you, Granddad Steve. Nuthin', Steve. Even. There
1: you go, Granddad. You got it right after all these years. Uh, but you know what? I'd like to thank thank you for us for listening because it's always a pleasure that people are interested and you all turned up, and it's all about education. You know, people blame people for what happened in the past, but I, uh, Dad, never did. And i got no reason to blame nothing because I can walk around free. If anyone should have complained, it should have been Dad and your your grandmother because they brought up under what they call the Act. It was basically like a concentration camp. You couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't leave the community, you couldn't see your brother and sister. And that's what Dad did. He did call it a concentration camp. But uh, that's with every mission in, in Queensland, there's 16 of them. In where they just displaced all the Aboriginals out of sight, out of mind. But once again, I just love to thank you for sitting here listening. And one day, this fellow might have me on the website, and I'll have all those stories written down before I drop dead. So in the next ten or twenty years. Yeah.
0: Theory. Yeah. Thank you very Thanks much. Right on. And thank you all for coming. Thanks so much.